the subject for this study is the doctrine of the Trinity, a most important doctrine in the Scripture. Now, let me simply point out that this doctrine is indeed found in the Word of God. We're going to go through some scripture that teaches us without any uncertainty that the Trinity is a biblically-based doctrine. It explains many of the things that we see in the scripture. But before we open up God's word and begin to look at biblical text that proves that the Trinity is true, before we do that, let me warn you concerning something. And that is, if you reject the divinity of Messiah and learn that there is an inherent relationship between the divinity of Messiah, that he's God, and the doctrine of the Trinity. In fact, the Trinity is what explains the divinity of Messiah. That we can affirm one God by also saying that we believe in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Three persons, and when I say persons, I'm speaking about the fact that God has a personality. God the Father does, God the Son does, and God the Holy Spirit. They are not the same. They are one, but there are three distinct personalities within what theologians call the Godhead. Now, that may sound confusing to some, but when we look at the Scripture, we're going to see why the doctrine of the Trinity is a necessity. And again, it's important because if you reject it, then you have not had your sins forgiven. You are still lost and dead spiritually in trespasses, iniquity, and sin. And you should have no expectation of being welcomed into the kingdom of God because you won't be. Why is that? Because if you reject the divinity of Messiah, the Trinity, then you have not accepted the biblical Messiah. You have rejected who he truly is. You have not received him as you must. In the same way that Islam, they have one in the Quran that they call Jesus. But it's not the biblical Jesus. It does not relate to what the Bible, the truth of God, refers to us concerning him, what it teaches about him. So because of that, they don't believe in the biblical Messiah. And one who rejects the divinity of Messiah has not accepted Yeshua that is, Jesus of Nazareth, according to who he truly is. Now, before we begin by looking at these biblical texts that does indeed prove that the doctrine of the Trinity is correct, I want us to do something. I want us to take out our Bibles and look at 1 John chapter 4, 1 John chapter 4, and we're going to begin with verse 2. 1 John chapter 4, in verse 2. Listen very carefully to these words. And by the way, I'm reading from the Texas Receptus. It's all Greek. I'm going to be translating the Greek into English for us. But realize something. 
The Texas Receptus is the best Greek manuscript that has been compiled to form the New Testament. And I'm going to be translating it in a most literal way where it says, look at verse 2. In this, you know the Spirit of God. And here, this knowing the Spirit of God, meaning you have experienced Him. He's within you. You have a relationship with Him. It's very similar to the concept that, that a man shall know his wife. He experiences her. So, in this, you know the Spirit of God. And then it says, Every spirit which confesses Messiah Yeshua, Jesus Christ, in the flesh has come, is from God. Now, what's he talking about here? Well, every spirit, meaning every individual. And it tells us earlier on, don't believe every spirit. So if it's a spirit from God, that spirit is going to affirm that, that in the flesh, Messiah has come. And why is that so important? He's come in the flesh? Well, you have to understand the context and what's being said here. Now, everyone believes that, that Yeshua, Minetzrat, Jesus of Nazareth, he came bodily into this world. He was born. He had flesh and blood. So why are they talking about the necessity to believe that he's come in the flesh? Well, it's talking about another doctrine that's also related to the Trinity, also related to the divinity of Messiah, and that is the Incarnation. That God who is eternal has visited his people in the flesh. And we call God becoming human flesh. We call that the incarnation. That he has visited humanity bodily. And so every spirit that confesses that Yeshua, the Son of God, has come in the flesh, this one is from God. But notice something else. Look now to the next verse, verse 3. And every spirit which does not confess Messiah Yeshua in the flesh has come is not from God. So every spirit that's from God confesses the incarnation. That Messiah has come in the flesh, meaning that God has visited his people in the person of Messiah Yeshua. And notice something else. And this, what's this? Well, it's in the gender of the neutral. That means we're talking about the spirit. And we're speaking specifically about the spirit of the Antichrist. So it says, this one, the spirit of the Antichrist, whom you have heard that is brought Meaning, and most Bibles will say, the spirit of the Antichrist which is coming. But it doesn't say that literally. It's in the passive, which means is brought. What is being taught here? It's being taught that, that the spirit of the Antichrist is subjected to the will of God. God will not allow the spirit of the Antichrist or the Antichrist himself to be manifested before the time that God allows before God allows this to take place. And it says, and now, 
the spirit is is brought into the world and now even is already here in the world at that time going back almost 2000 years ago so what do we know the antichrist spirit denies the incarnation that messiah has come in the flesh the incarnation of god taking human form so anyone who denies the incarnation that is the divinity of messiah that denies the trinity this one is not of the spirit of god the spirit of god is not in that one what spirits in that one the spirit of the antichrist and let me say as we move closer to the last days we're going to see more and more individuals deny the trinity denying the divinity of messiah what i want to do now is to begin our study by looking at the book of colossians colossians and chapter one colossians and chapter one reveals a very important truth now we know something we know that it says in the book of Genesis, Bereshit bara Elohim et Hashemai viet Haaretz, which means in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now, no one would disagree with that who says, I'm a believer. I have faith in Messiah. Everyone believes Genesis 1 1 that God created the heavens and the earth, but we find that Paul is more specific. He tells us something very important, and that's this. Look, if you would, to Colossians chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses 15 through 17. Colossians 1, verses 15 through 17, it says, speaking about Messiah, who is the image of of the invisible god now that word image is the greek word icon and it means something that that perfectly represents that is something that is exact so when it says that yeshua is the icon of the invisible god messiah represents him perfectly it also tells us that he is the firstborn of all creation. What does firstborn have to do with? Inheritance. He is going to inherit all of creation. And it also says, because in him, in who? In Yeshua, in Jesus Christ. In him, all things were created. Things that are in heaven, things that are upon the earth things that are visible and things that are invisible whether we're talking about thrones or dominions it comes from the word for lord so those things that lord over whether we're talking about uh, thrones or dominions or rulers or and it has a word authority all things and listen to this all things through him and for him were created and he is before all things meaning he wasn't created 
He is before all things and all things in him. Very important. This last part answers a very important scientific question. It says, and in him all things consist, meaning they're held together. Now, we know that you pick up anything, you, you pick up a book, and it's made of, of different substances. And you can go and, and find out, okay, this is leather, and you can find out what leather consists of. That is the molecule structure for leather, for the various elements. But here's what's, what's not known. What keeps them together? In the same way that there is gravity, there has to be something that holds something together. And we don't know what that is. Well, Paul did. It is Messiah. He's not only the creator of all things, but he maintains all things. All things consist in him, meaning they have their being in him. So we learned something. We learned that Messiah is the one who's actually created. When it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, the God that we're speaking about is not God the Father, but God the Son. Very important. And look at something else. Look, if you would, to verse 19 of this same first chapter of Colossians. Because in him, it was well-pleasing, well-pleasing to her, God. In him, it was well-pleasing that all the fullness, all the fullness of who? Of God dwells. Now, I was sharing this verse with someone not that long ago. And they say, ah, there you go. You interpret something. You make an assumption that the Bible doesn't. You think that in him is the fullness of the divinity, but the Bible doesn't say that in that text. Well, he's right. It doesn't. But the reason I said that is because I know what chapter 2 says. Look, if you would, to that same book of Colossians, this time chapter 2 and verse 9. So what he was saying in some sense was good. That verse didn't say it. But the reason why I added it is because I knew what chapter 2 said. He didn't. And notice what it says in chapter 2. That because in him dwells all the fullness of what? Of the deity. Now, this word deity here, it is made from the word theos, God. But it also consists of another word. And oftentimes we translate this word, it relates to God being divine, but we can translate it as the Godhead. In him, the fullness of God, the very Godhead, dwells in him. So this, this teaches us something so significant. In him, in Yeshua, in Jesus of Nazareth, the fullness of God dwells. There's no other way to understand Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. And it explains what Paul meant earlier in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 19. So in Messiah Yeshua, the very divinity, the fullness of the divinity of God dwells. Now, let's look at another passage of Scripture that deals with uh, God and Messiah. 
and them being one, three and one, and one and three. Look, if you would, to the book of Genesis. I referred to it, Genesis 1-1, a moment ago. But I want you to look now at Genesis 1-26. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26, where it says, And God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Now, who is the R, O-U-R? Who is God speaking about when he says, let us make man in our image and in our likeness? Well, you will have some that say, well, they're speaking about the, the holy uh, uh, council in heaven with God. No, it's speaking about the Trinity. How do we know that? Well, remember what verse 26 says. God is speaking and he says, let us make man in our image and in our likeness. And notice what it says in verse 27. God created the man. So God created the man. How? Now it's singular. In his image. In the image of God. Not in some, some heavenly council, but in the image of God. God created him. Male and female, God created man. So now we see that, that man was created not in the image of some council that is in heaven, but in the image of God himself. And therefore, because we were created in God's image, his likeness, meaning we're supposed to be like him, we're supposed to reflect his character, we're supposed to reflect his holiness, his righteousness, his goodness, his grace. That's what humanity is called to do. That's how God created us to behave initially. But man, unfortunately, chose sin, and that was uh, ruin. But thank God, Messiah restores. But we look here when it says, let us make man in our image who's the r who's the we god the father god the son and god the holy spirit so it's very important that we see that and we're going to look at another verse that also speaks of this same truth later on but until we do that i want us to move now to another passage again from the old testament Look, if you would, to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah and chapter 7. Now, one of the things that, that one must do in interpreting the Word of God is to pay attention to all that's written in His Word. Because if we ignore any of Scripture, we're not going to get the full understanding. Look with me to Genesis, or excuse me, Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, chapter 7 and let's look at verse verse 14 isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 about the virgin birth notice what it says therefore adonai meaning the lord therefore the lord he will give to you oat what is oat oat is a sign but it's a miraculous sign that only God can do. Now, if we interpret a key word here, the word Alma, some will tell you 
that it just means a young woman. That is not true. And Alma refers to a righteous woman. And if she's not married, she is a virgin, in fact. And Alma is a woman who has been proven, attested to by a procedure that she is a virgin. And that's why we have a miraculous context to this. Not just a bitula, which is a virgin that is assumed to be. There's no reason to think that she's not, but an Alma is stronger than that. One who has been proven to be a virgin. And therefore it says, the Lord will give to you a sign. Behold, the Alma, the virgin, what will she do? Conceived and will give birth to a son. And his name shall be called Emmanuel. What is Emmanuel? With us, God. So the miraculous thing is that a virgin is going to conceive. And she's going to conceive by means of the Holy Spirit. We know that elsewhere. And God, this one who is born into the world from her, is Emmanuel, God with us. Literally, God with us. And that shouldn't surprise us because we know that the scripture says God created all things. And we know that Yeshua, he is the one who did that. Look at another verse, also from Isaiah chapter 9. Also from the book of Isaiah in chapter 9. In your Bible, it's probably verse 6. In the Hebrew, it's verse 5, where it says, For a child, and it says, be born. Now, it's something that's in the future. So I'm going to translate it in the future, although literally it's not that way, but it simply says, a child be born and born for us. And then a son has been given for us. Again, it's in the future, will be given, but he's saying it in the past. Why? The past tense is being used here to show promise. To show that God is going to do it. Even though it's a future event, we can believe it because God is going to do it. And that's why it appears in the passive. But it's a future event. And it says concerning the son that is going to be given for us, it says that that his administration, it's talking about his rule, his role, what he's about is going to be upon his shoulders, meaning that he's going to carry it out. And who is this one? Again, his name will be called Peleoetz, El Gibor, Aviad, and Sar Shalom. Now, I want to mention the Hebrew for a reason. Peleoetz, El Gibor, Aviad, and Sar Shalom. Eight words. Now, the reason why I say that is that there is someone who is very dishonest or simply not enough knowledgeable because he says, and I'm speaking about Tovia Singer, he translates this the God who is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, will call his name the Prince of Peace. So he says the first six 
words, Heleyotz, El Gibor, Aviad, those relate to God. Only Sar Shalom relates to Messiah. This is not true. Grammar doesn't bear that out, but even the Talmud says all eight words, Pele, Yoetz, El, Gibor, Avi, Ad, that's six, and, and Sar Shalom, they all refer to Messiah. The Talmud says that. So anyone who is an Orthodox rabbi, like Kovia Singer, has to affirm the Talmud. He is, is more important in trying to justify his thoughts rather than agree with what he pledges unity and support to the Talmud and also agree with the Word of God itself. So it's interesting here in verse 5, verse 6 in your Bible, that this one who is born, and again we're talking about Yeshua, that he is called the Mighty God and the Everlasting Father meaning father in the sense of authority. He's the eternal authority, and he's also the prince of peace. Well, what I want to do now is look at another passage. Let's go back to 1 John for a moment, and we have a wonderful scripture there, 1 John, but this time 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 7. Now, unfortunately, Many of your Bibles will only have half the verse in. But again, if you're using, as I am, the Texas Receptus, it has the entire verse. Now, what's happened? Well, we know something. The doctrine of the Trinity was controversial. Some people were confused about the identity of Messiah, of Yeshua. And therefore, they didn't like this verse. And, and some manuscripts, they wouldn't copy it. Well, if we go back to the best manuscripts, this is what it says. And again, I'm translating literally. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 7 where it says, Because there are three that are witnessing, bearing testimony. So there are three bearing testimony in the heaven. So we're not talking about people, but we're talking about those who are in heaven. And we're not speaking about angels. But we're speaking about who? Well, it tells us. The Father, the Word, the Word is the Son. We'll see that later on. The Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And then notice what it says at the end of this verse. And these are three. These three are one. So these three are one. And it simply supports what we know. Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God is one. One God. We don't serve and worship many gods. We serve one God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. As it says here, these three are one. Very important verse. I would look in your Bible to see if it has all the verse there. And then we're going to look at another scripture. Turn, if you would, to Philippians. And this is another one that, that clearly attests to the divinity of the Messiah. Look at Hebrews, or excuse me, Philippians, Philippians chapter 2. The book of, of Philippians chapter 2, and we're going to begin in, in verse 5 where it says, For this, and it's talking about, 
this way of thinking, this mind, this perspective. Let there be this mind in you, which was also in Messiah Yeshua. And who is Messiah Yeshua? Who in the form of God exists. And look at this next part. He did not consider to be grasped to be equal with God. Meaning this. He did not need to grasp something, to take something, to be equal to God. What is this saying? He is equal to God. Why? He's God. So those who say that the Bible doesn't teach the divinity of Messiah, let me just share with you. There are so many more passages that I could go to that point clearly to the divinity of Messiah. And the whole purpose of the Trinity is to give an explanation for the divinity of Messiah. That the three are one. That's the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God the Father, God the Word, meaning the Son of God, Yeshua, and God the Holy Spirit. But notice what it says. Again, all of of this passage. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. For let this be in you, which was also in Messiah Yeshua, who in the form of God exists, and did not consider something to grasp, to be equal to God. But what did he do? But himself he emptied. So he emptied himself and appeared in the form, taking on the form of a servant, in the likeness of men becoming. And it says, and was found in the appearance of a man, having humbled himself, having humbled himself unto death and death on a cross. Now, his body, this is what's being emphasized here. See, you cannot say God died on the cross. God cannot die. Even though Messiah is God, God didn't die on the cross. It was the human body that died on the cross. God is eternal. So God never died. Don't think that that's heresy to say that. So his flesh, his body died. His humanity died. But but his divinity certainly did not. Now I want to move into some scripture. I'm going to do this quickly for the sake of time. But, but look if you would to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew 24 and verse 36. Matthew 24 verse 36 now we're dealing with here a statement that that messiah said concerning and hear this carefully concerning the rapture and he said this of the day and the hour no one knows except the father not the angels and another scripture says not even the son now people want to look at that and say oh you just proved something if 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 messiah is god he would know all things he does know all things we have to understand things from a theological standpoint in this passage of matthew 24 this this olivet discourse what messiah said on the mount of olives 
What's emphasized is that he is the son of man. Whenever you deal with a passage in the Bible that deals with Messiah, especially New Testament passages, we have to ask ourselves, what's being emphasized? Yeshua as the son of God or Yeshua as the son of man? Son of God is emphasizing his divinity. Son of man is emphasizing his humanity. And when he speaks about the son of man, he's speaking about things that usually what he's revealing, what he's teaching is an example for us. He's giving us an example. So we don't know the day or the hour. Messiah, because he is the son of man, remember he emptied himself. He does not take hold of that. He does not receive that knowledge. Does he know in one sense? As God, he knows all things, but he he denies himself in this, this kenosis, this emptying of himself. Why? To be the perfect man. We don't need to know the day or the hour of the rapture. We're still called to be ready. So all the scripture is saying is this. Messiah is going to be ready for that time. Even though he does not know it, that's the example to us. We don't know the day or the hour, but we're going to be ready. That's what the implication is. You need to be ready for that. Let's look at another passage that people will see as problematic to the divinity. Look with me this time to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. And let's begin with verse, uh, verse 17. It deals with one that goes out on the way. And we see here that, that he runs and he wants to meet and he comes before Yeshua with the purpose of asking, asking a question. And this is what he says, still in verse 17 where he says, Good teacher, what do I, what must I do in order to inherit eternal life? Now, the problem is he thinks it's what he does. But the emphasis in Yeshua's response is, is upon the fact that he says, good teacher. What does Messiah say? Why do you call me good? Now that's an important question. He wants to know, why is it that you're calling me good? No one is good except one. And who's that? God. So many people will say, see, he's denying that he's God. No, he's not. What he's doing is saying, I want to question this young man. You say, good teacher, do you believe that I'm God, that my teaching is of God? That that's who you're talking to? Is this why you're calling me good teacher? The implication is, if you think I'm God, you need to do everything that I said, you're going to submit to that. You're going to embrace it. So he was simply questioning him. How do you think I am? Do you see me as God among you, Emmanuel, as Isaiah 7, 14 says? Or do you see me differently? And if it's differently, it's incorrect. Well, let's move to just a few more. I think we're making our point. But look now to the Gospel of John. We had a few verses from 1 John. But now let's look at that the Gospel of John and chapter 1. The Gospel of John and chapter 1. We all know this, this scripture where he says, look at chapter 1 and verse 1. 
in the beginning was the word and again the word is yeshua there's no disagreement regardless of what people think about this doctrine of the trinity everyone agrees the word in this context is the son is yeshua in the beginning was the word and the word was with god in the beginning he was with god and notice something else and the word was god now there's something very important and here again if you don't look at the greek in the original language you miss this what you see here is that god and the term word are both in the nominative normally if you say and the word was god god would be in the accusative it's the direct object here he's the direct object but here we see something that's grammatically peculiar why is that both are in the nominative why to show that the word is god and god is the word only in the greek language can you put together a, a grammatical construction that teaches us that only in this language and that's why the new testament was written in greek because it wants to teach us this truth look now at verse verse 3 of this same first chapter of john we're going to see again what paul tells us see some people say oh that's paul well it's scripture it's great that it's Paul or anyone who was inspired to write down God's word inerrantly like Paul and all of the, the writers did. Notice what it says in verse 3. All meaning everything. All things through him came about. And without him, nothing came about which has been. And this true is true for those things in the past, present, and in the future. Everything. Hear that. What this scripture is saying is not only everything that's in the past or now has come about through him. That's true. All things consist in him as well. We learned that. But everything that's going to be is going to be created through him. He creates all things. And who is that? The word. Who? Yeshua. He is creator God. This is what we need to see. So if you say, do you believe that God created the heavens and earth? Say, yes, I do. Did you know that God who did that is Yeshua, God the Son? People that deny the Trinity don't want to believe that, but that's what the Word of God is saying. Let's look at another passage from uh, the Gospel of John. This time, look at uh, John chapter 20. John chapter 20 and verse uh, 28. Now let me just set this up. I just want to read one verse, but I want to set it up properly. And this has to do with Thomas, doubting Thomas, that said that uh, he didn't believe that Yeshua actually resurrected. And remember what he said, unless I, you know, fondle, touch his uh, hands and his side and see those holes, those imprints, I won't believe. Well, lo and behold, Messiah came and he got to do just that, to touch, to, to fill those uh, places where the nails went through his palms and that sword was, was stuck in his side. He got to see that. And what did he say? Well, look at John 20 and verse 28. And Thomas answered, and he said to him, that is to Yeshua, he said to him, my Lord 
and my God. Now, notice, Yeshua said, don't call me God. I'm not Lord. No, he didn't say that. He says, blessed are those who have not seen, but yet believe. Believe what? That he's the Lord God. That's what the Bible reveals. So again, anyone who denies the Trinity, anyone who denies the divinity of Messiah, they are confused. They have not accepted the Messiah, the biblical Messiah. And therefore, they're still lost in their sins and they have no hope of the kingdom of God. Let's just do uh, uh, one last location. Turn, if you would, to the book of the Revelation, the book of Revelation and chapter 1. The book of Revelation and chapter 1. Again, I need to set this up properly. We know that John consistently took Old Testament passages, that is, passages from the Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh, what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, and he brought them into, a portion of them, into his book. And oftentimes he, he changed context. Sometimes he, he wove them together with other passages or other sentences in order to teach us something. Look, if you would, to Revelation chapter 1 and verse 7. Where it says, behold, and again, not I'm coming, but I'm brought. It shows the submissiveness of Messiah to his Father's will. So he's being brought at that time, not his time. He is always in submissiveness, always ready to obey what his Father wants. That's why he's called the Son. Look again, verse 7, behold. He is brought with the clouds. Now, if you know your Bible, this idea of Messiah coming in the clouds, in the original context, it's not speaking about his coming. It's speaking about him going to the Ancient of Days, read some time, Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. This quotation is from there. That... One like the Son of Man will be brought in the clouds to the Ancient of Days. Ancient of Days is God the Father. And what is this Son of Man going to do? He's going to inherit the kingdom and honor and glory to the extent that all people, all languages, all nations, every tribe is going to worship Him. Now again, I've said this before in other messages, but it, it bears repetition. The Word of God is so wonderful. Because if this was Hebrew, and by the way, Daniel chapter 7 is Aramaic. Why is that important? Because in Hebrew we would say that all those peoples, nations, tribes, and languages, they will, will worship. But we would say, La avod, to worship. And la avod can also mean to work or to serve. In a general sense, not necessarily worshipful. So if it was left in the Hebrew, it wouldn't say necessarily, you could build a case, it's talking about serving, but not worship. But it's not written in Hebrew. There's a different word. Pei, lamet, chet. And there, within the Aramaic language and how it's used, especially in the book of Daniel, it always refers to service in the sense of worship. And therefore, we know something, that 
everyone's going to worship. Everyone is going to be in the kingdom of God. Everyone is going to bow the knee and confess with their mouth that Yeshua is Lord. So that passage, look again at our verse, Revelation 1, 7, where it says, Behold, he is brought with the clouds, meaning everyone's going to worship him. If he was not God, they couldn't worship him. That would be idolatry. It also says, and every eye will see him. Where's that? Well, if you look, the context for that passage, every eye will see him, is from Isaiah chapter 52 and verse 8. And what's the context? God returning. Not, not God the Son, not Messiah, but God returning his presence to Zion. And it says every eye will see him. And now that passage is applied to Messiah, which again supports that he is God with us. So every eye will see him. And then it says, and the ones who pierced him, meaning stabbed him, everyone is going to see him and there's going to be those that mourn concerning him who's going to mourn every tribe of the earth yea and amen so everyone is going to and this word for mourning is a word that relates to a unique mourning or a lamentation that's offered up to god so over and over in the scripture we see that that Messiah is, is related to the reader of Scripture as God, as the Son of God. And the Son of God is indeed divine. Well, we also have here in the same way where Messiah says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. We see that this was said, this is the language that Isaiah used to speak about God. So over and over, John, both in his epistle and in his gospel, and now in the book of Revelation, uses Old Testament passages to support the divinity of Messiah. We need to accept this, embrace it, because it's true. And let me conclude by saying for the third time how important this is. If you reject the Trinity, you are rejecting the gospel because you have not put your faith in the biblical Christ. You don't know truly who Yeshua is. And if you don't know his identity, you can't receive him. You are rejecting the biblical Messiah when you reject his divinity. And therefore, your sins are not forgiven and you will not be welcomed into heaven. I promise you that. This is vital. You must accept the divinity of Messiah to receive the gospel. Well, I'll close with that. I hope this short study has assisted you and clarified that indeed, and we only looked at a portion of the relevant passages. There's numerous ones, but we've looked at enough to show that Messiah is indeed God. Until next time, may God bless you. Shalom from Israel.